You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. All right, it's great to see you this morning. Go ahead and grab a Bible and turn to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9 is where we're going to be, so grab a Bible. That would really serve you to have one out and open on your lap. So if you want to grab, uh, if you don't have a Bible, you can grab one of those. Underneath every three or four seats, you should be able to find one. And so if you need one uh, that way, uh, feel free to do that. If you need a good Bible, that's the version we use here. It's the ESV, and uh, you're more than welcome to take that home. That would be our gift to you if you need a good Bible. So Mark chapter 9, while you're, while you're turning there, uh, let me just do one quick uh, thing here on catching you up on something that we want to make sure you're aware of on one of the ways that we're trying to help develop and equip you as our church family over the next year. Uh, Starting in February, we are going to start a thing to any and all of our men on the first Wednesday of every month at 6.30 a.m. at the Lighthouse Coffee Bar. Uh, where we're going to meet together, um, any and all of our men that want to meet, and uh, we're going to run through some content. We're going to pray together. I think it'd be a great way for you to get to know some other people in our church family. Um, But we want to just try to be more intentional in how we're developing kind of the wider kind of breadth of our church. And then on the second Wednesday of the month, so not the first Wednesday, but the second now, we would have any and all of our women that would like to do that. Um, We're going to open that up and... uh, just for the breadth of our ladies, have something that we can do to help serve you and equip you and develop you. And so um, first Wednesday of the month, starting in February, so I think that's February 5th, our guys are welcome to meet us 6.30 at the Lighthouse Coffee Bar the second Wednesday of the month. Ladies, you're welcome to meet us there, and we would love to be able to serve you that way um, over the next year. So we're excited about that. We'd love for you to consider that, think about that, and if it works for you, we'd love to uh, see you there. Okay, Mark chapter 9, we are in a great passage this morning, starting in verse 14. So let me kind of preface this text by by a couple of things here. So let me start by just saying we love to preach through books of the Bible, and there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, One of the main ones that as a pastor and preacher, it keeps me honest. It makes sure that I don't just give you the things that I like in the Bible, but I give you the whole Bible. So, So I like it for a variety of reasons. I think it helps you learn how to study the Bible as we, and read the Bible as we preach through it. Um, systematically. Um, So it does a lot of good things. So we are now starting this morning our 31st sermon in the Gospel of Mark. So we have been here for a while, right? And we're not getting out anytime soon. So so we're still in here for a while. We're in chapter 9 of 16. And so now here's one of my fears though. I don't want you to get lost like in in the, the forest among the trees and like lose sight of the big picture of Mark. So let me take a second to pull out of, of chapter 9 and to give you that 30,000 foot view of what's going on. So let me just kind of reframe what Mark is doing in these 16 chapters. Um, the Gospel of Mark, 16 chapters, divides neatly into two sections. Chapters 1 through 8 is dealing with this primary question, who is Jesus? Chapters 9 through 16, those eight chapters, are dealing with this primary question. What did Jesus come to do? Who is Jesus? What did he come to do? Those are the two questions that are driving the two sections of Mark. First eight chapters, last eight chapters. And so in the first eight chapters, Mark puts together story after story. And these aren't like random. These are specifically put together in the life of Jesus to get across his point, to help us see who is this man, Jesus? So so he's putting together all of these stories. So in chapter one, you've got Jesus healing a leper. Chapter two, you've got Jesus healing a paralytic. You've got all of these stories wrapped together throughout Mark to help us see who he is. You get to chapter four and Jesus um, calms the storm. Do you remember that story? And at the end of that story, it's like the question of the gospel of Mark, the first eight chapters, when the disciples look at Jesus after he has calmed the winds and the waves and says, who is this man that can do that? 
That is the question Mark is trying to get us to. So you keep reading forward in chapter 5. He's doing miracles, story after story, showing us who this man is. Chapter 6, in chapter 6, Jesus feeds the 5,000 men, probably 15 to 20,000 people with two fish and five loaves. So you've got all of these stories wrapping through, like and trying to get us to this question of who is Jesus. And those first eight chapters culminate in chapter 8, verse 26, 27, 28, right in through there, where Jesus looks at his disciples and says, but who do you say that I am? And for the first time in human history, in, in uh, Mark chapter 8, a human being responds correctly to that question. For the first time in human history, somebody actually sees who this man Jesus is, you remember Peter's response? You are the Christ. And from there, Jesus clarifies what he has come to do. I'm now going to Jerusalem, and I'm going I'm to suffer. I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to be killed. I'm going to rise from the dead on the third day. So from that point, from that confession in chapter 8, that's like the continental divide. It's the hinge of the whole gospel of Mark. And from that point forward in chapter 8, the continental divide, all the water is flowing to Jerusalem. All the water is flowing to what Je- the primary purpose of Jesus' life, to suffer on the cross for, for your sin and my sin and to rise from the dead on the third day. So in chapter 11, that's when Jesus actually gets to Jerusalem. So the water actually gets to where it's going. They're in Jerusalem in chapter 11. But between chapter 8 and that confession of Peter and chapter 11, them being in Jerusalem, you've got chapter 9 and 10 kind of squeezed in there. And in chapter 9 and 10, you've got Jesus spending intense time with his disciples. And this is what he's doing in these two chapters that we're going to be in for the next month or month and a half. He is showing them what it looks like to live with him. What it looks like to be a disciple. He's reminding them, he's teaching them these lessons that they're going to need if they're actually going to live life with him along the way. And and in this passage this morning, we've got this beautiful passage where Jesus is reminding them something that they are so prone to forget, that the Christian life, life with Jesus, is meant to be lived by this moment-to-moment faith in Jesus, completely relying upon Jesus, completely dependent upon Jesus. He's reminding them of their frailty and his sufficiency. He's reminding them that apart from, apart from him, they can do absolutely nothing. This is the point of this, uh, of this teaching here, this passage. Jesus is looking at his disciples and he's saying, do you know who you are? Or maybe more aptly, who you aren't. Do you know that and who I am? You've got to rely on me. You've got to depend on me. You've got to live moment to moment by faith in me. So this is the lesson. So in light of that, read along with me. And I'm going to kind of divide this passage up into two sections. We're going to get the problem of prayerlessness, and then we're going to see this picture of faith. Problem of of prayerlessness on one side, picture of faith on the other. So so we're going to start with the problem of prayerlessness. So now the main point of this passage comes in the last couple of verses. So I'm going to read read along with me here. I'm going to get you to just kind of follow along with me, and then we're going to get to the last part, and this is where like the punch in the gut comes, right? Jesus is going to give us the, the whole point of it in the last couple. So we're at verse 14 in chapter 9. And remember what's happened. Jesus, Peter, James, and John have been up on the mount, of, and, and this whole transfiguration thing has just happened. Dan preached on that a few weeks ago. It's this incredible mountaintop experience. They just had a mind-blowing experience on this mountain. And they now leave this mountaintop experience, and they are now back into the valley of brokenness, right? So this is where you pick it up in verse 14. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them. And scribes arguing with them. 
And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. So remember, you've got Jesus and three of the disciples up on the mountain, transfiguration, this huge mountaintop, mind-blowing experience. But you've got these other nine disciples who, who they're still down in the valley of brokenness down here. They're ministering, they're doing their thing. And all of a sudden, they have done something to get themselves in an argument with the scribes. In verse 16, Jesus is trying to figure out what it is. So he says this in verse 16, and he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And then someone from the crowd answered him. This is where the argument, this is what what it's based on. Someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. And from, from Luke's version of the story, we know that this was this man's only child. I, mean, I, I always want to say this as you're reading the Bible, because I think we're so prone to read so quickly. I, don't just read over that. You've got to feel that moment, right? I mean, picture if that's your only child, and that is happening to him. He is under that sort of oppression from sin and evil, what you would be, the anguish you would be feeling in that moment. And then Jesus says this, or it goes on to say this, so, so he's brought this, this child to Jesus. And so I ask your disciples to cast this demon or this spirit out. And, and here's the problem right here of the passage. And they were not able to. Now, and just remember, in chapter 6, Jesus has given them power and authority to cast out demons. They were actually able to do it in chapter 6, verse 13. So they were doing these sorts of things. But now they ran up into something that they could not handle. And look how Jesus responds. So this man brings them to uh, his son to to the disciples, to Jesus. They were unable to do anything about it. And then Jesus says this in response, and he answered them, O faithless, and that's kind of a theme right there, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Jesus is having a moment right there, right? I mean, it's a righteous moment. He's not sinning in this moment, but he's having a moment. And then he goes on to say this, bring him to me, Bring bring this child to me. And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. I mean, just feel that, right? And then look at what this father says. But if you can do anything, but, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for, those, for, the, for the one who believes. And immediately the, the father of the child cried out and said, and I love that this, you know, these five or six words here. I believe, help my unbelief. And then look how Jesus responds to that wavering faith. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. Okay, now think about what's happened so far. This, this man has brought his son to the disciples. They could not do anything. He expresses some faith to Jesus, and, and Jesus does what they couldn't do. Now, that puts an elephant in the room between the disciples and Jesus. And that elephant is called, what just happened, right? Why could I not do that, but you can? 
what went wrong as we're trying to, to help and minister to this man? What, what happened there? And so as soon as the disciples get Jesus by, the, by, him, you know, by themselves, they address the elephant. They ask the question. And here's the question in verse 28. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately. So as soon as they could get him by themselves, here's what they asked. Why could we not cast it out? What is wrong with us? How did you do that? But we couldn't. You gave us the authority, the power to do this. We have been doing it, but all of a sudden now we can't do it. What in the world happened? Now just take a second and before you read verse 29, or just maybe pretend like you don't know what verse 29 says, think about the things you might fill in the blank with. So the disciples are are asking you the question, why could Jesus do that, but we couldn't? Why is that? Now, now, there's a lot of things you might fill in the blank with, right? You might fill that in with a theological issue. Maybe you need to know more. Maybe you need to be a little more, like, more biblically literate. Maybe you just need to know some more things. Maybe one more year of seminary and you would be ready to go for that, right? Or you might have like a moral fill in the blank. Maybe it's that sin in your life. So, so there's a lot of possible fill in the blanks here, right? But I want you to see what Jesus says in verse 29. Here is his answer. They say, why could you do that and we couldn't? You'd given us the authority, the power, all of that. What was wrong in that moment with our ministry? And and here's what he says. Verse 29, and he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Selah on that. When you get to verse 29, verse 29 is supposed to shock you. Like you're supposed to read verse 29 and say, There's no way that could be the problem. It's impossible that that could be it. I mean, think about what the the disciples are doing. They have, like, their fingernails, under their fingernails are dirty with ministry right now, right? I mean, they are serving people. They are helping people. They are ministering to people. And they come across a demon-possessed boy. And they are attempting to cast out a demon. To cast out a demon, right? I mean, that's no small thing. And and the indictment is clear. The problem with them is not the uh, the length of their prayers. It has nothing to do with the wisdom of their prayers. The indictment that Jesus is giving, he's saying that the problem is you just didn't pray. You just totally lack prayer. You're doing this. You really think you've got what it takes to do this. That's the problem. So let me just take this a step further and try to get at what I think Jesus is getting at in this passage. By pointing to prayer as the problem in their ministry and the problem in their lives and the problem in this passage, he's not saying that prayer is like the primary problem in their life. Like he's using prayer to point to the primary problem. Like prayer is the symptom. And it's the easiest way for Jesus to show them what is behind the symptom. It's the easiest way for Jesus to show these disciples who are ministering, who are trying to do all of these things in the name of God. It's the easiest way for Jesus to show them what their primary problem is. And if you want it, just like in a single sentence, he is saying this, your primary problem is you're self-sufficient. You are self-reliant. You really think you've got all that it requires to do life. You really think you've got all that is required to make these things happen, and you don't. That's what your prayerlessness is showing. I love what H.B. Charles, um, he's an African-American preacher. I got to hear him a few months ago. He has written a book on prayer. I, I love how he says it. He says, prayer is arguably 
the most objective measurement of our dependence upon God. Now, say on that. Prayer is arguably the most objective measurement of our dependence upon God. Think of it this way, he says. The things you pray about are the things you, you trust God to handle. You know that you need God to handle. The things you neglect to pray about are the things you trust that you can handle on your own. Do you see how prayer is, is linked to self-sufficiency and dependence? You see how this works? See, okay, let me maybe try to go at it this way. Prayerfulness on one side and self-sufficiency on the other are, have like an inverse relationship. So if you are a praying person, it is showing that, that you are dependent. But if you're not a praying person, it is showing that, that you are very self-reliant and self-sufficient. Are you seeing how that works? It, it works on an inverse relationship. So prayerfulness is an expression of our dependence upon God. Prayerfulness is us coming to God like a two-year-old comes to their dad and says, I need help. Arms up in the air saying to their parents, I can't do this on my own. I need someone else to help me. That's what prayer is. It's pouring your heart out to God in dependence upon God for help. That's prayer. Prayerlessness, on the other hand, is arms down, resistant to the help of God. Prayerlessness is an expression of our self-reliance and self-sufficiency. Like the reason that we're prayerless, that's the issue. The reason that we're prayerless is because deep in our bones, like deep in our gut, we really, deep down in us, believe that we've got what it takes. Our resources, our power, our wisdom will see us through this. And God, if we need you, hey, we'll call out in a pinch. See, this is, this is prayerlessness. This is what it's showing about us. Now, let me change the words just for a second here. And let me change the, the words out of like prayer, or, uh, dependency and self-reliance into living moment by moment in faith. Because it, this is just another way to say it. And this is the heart of what Jesus is getting at in this passage. Prayerfulness is an expression of living moment to moment by faith in Jesus. Prayerfulness. This is what prayerfulness is showing about you. When we are praying, when we are, when we are living with the posture of prayer in our life, it is showing that moment to moment in our life, we are living by faith in Jesus. But prayerlessness, it is showing. Prayerlessness is an expression so I'm not going to use the word self-reliance. I'm going to use a different word that's communicating the same thing. Prayerlessness is an expression, and it's showing us that we are living moment to moment by faith in ourselves. You see the problem? See how this works here? I, I love, you know, I, I've talked about this book several times. I, I've told you that I have a crush on Paul Miller, Praying Life. It's, it's been really bad over the last six months. So our staff is reading Paul Miller's book, A Praying Life. And I love, in, in one of the chapters, he's talking about learning dependency. Or, or learning what it looks like to live by faith. And he's trying to help us see, and, and this is the problem, by the way. When we talk about prayer, what everyone thinks is, what I really need is just a little more like discipline and I just got to do this thing. That's what I really need to solve my prayerlessness problem. I just need like to white knuckle this and more self-discipline. And, and he does a wonderful job in that chapter of showing what you need is not more self-discipline. What you need is to fill your poverty of spirit. 
That's what you need. See, that's what prayer connected to. Prayer is not an expression of how self-disciplined we are. Prayer is an expression that we know our poverty in spirit, that we are poor in spirit, that we actually need God moment by moment in our life. This is what prayer is. See, no matter how much faith the disciples thought they had in this moment, Jesus is showing them by their prayer or lack thereof that you're really not living moment to moment by faith in me. You're really living moment to moment by faith in you and what you can do. Like prayer, like nothing else in our lives shows us what we are living in moment to moment dependence of. Moment to moment in faith of. Ourselves, God. Prayer is showing us that thing right there. Okay, now let me take this out of the disciples and let's apply it to us. Because, you know, really when we read chapter, or, you know, chapter 9 and we get to verse 28 and 29, when the disciples ask the question, Jesus says the problem is your prayerlessness. When we get to that, it's supposed to shock us in two ways. We're supposed to look at the disciples and say, are you, are you morons? Like, are you really trying to do that sort of stuff and not pray about that? Are you serious? That's supposed to be shocking to us that Jesus says that about the disciples. But it's not just supposed to shock us about how prayerlessness is in and a part of the disciples' lives as they are trying to do the things God has called them to do, it's also supposed to shock us that we are the disciples. See, this passage is um, both a window and a mirror. It's a window for us to see through and into the disciples' lives and heart. But it's also a mirror that God is saying, now will you please look at yourself in that too? Will you please allow this to to stand in front of you so that you can see that you are so much like the disciples. You're trying to do all of these things. You're trying to accomplish all of these things in your life and you are doing that all by faith in you. And you need to come to this, you need to come and see this, that there are gonna be a lot of this kind of things that cannot be done but by anything but prayer. You've gotta come to see that. That you, you, you can like try to do life on your own, but you're going to have a million this kind of things in your life that you will never be able to do and accomplish on your own, on your own strength, with your own wisdom, with your own resources. There's going to be a million of those things that actually require me to do it. That this is what he's showing them, and it is what he's trying to press into this room with this passage this morning. And by the way, can you not just see yourself in this? Is this not like a microcosm of how all of, we, all of us live? Is this not just like a, a perfect picture, ugly but perfect picture of how you and I do our daily lives? It was so interesting. A couple of weeks ago, I called one of my buddies on the way home from work. And just to check in with him, nothing big, just thought about him and, and called him. And uh, so I, you know, he answered the phone and I said, hey, just no agenda, just Checking in on you, thought about you, you know, on the way. And he instantly starts talking about a little squabble that he and his wife were in. And, uh, you know, he, it, there was things that he was wanting to see change and things he was kind of offended by. It wasn't like a crisis moment, but it was just like things that were, were frustrating to him that he actually wanted, really wanted change in his wife on. And like probably legitimately so. Probably some areas that needed to be changed in his wife. And so after he finishes um, doing his, his kind of, squabble, you know, about his wife, I asked the question that I hate to be asked but need to be asked. It's one of those questions, you know? So I asked the question back, man, have you prayed about that? 
Like that God would actually change, change your heart. And I, I just picture if that was me, I would have probably have said, yeah, I, that was right. I, before I called, that's what I was. But he just so owned that. He said, you know what? I haven't. And I probably should. And can we not just feel that just for a second? That there's so many things that are happening right now in our life and we revert. We, we are like hardwired to revert to put your head down and make it happen. And God is just trying to remind us this morning, you can put your head down all you want, but you're actually probably gonna make things worse rather than better. That you actually need me. So it kind of leads to this question. Are we a people who pray out of an expression of dependency upon God, knowing that we need God, expression of the, our poverty of spirit? Are we a people who pray? Like, like when, when you're about to have the hard conversation with that person that you know you need to have, is it a pick up the phone and just have it or call him and let's meet and just have it? Or do we actually pray for that person and pray for the sin in our own life that makes hard conversations even harder to hear, Right? I mean, when you're wanting change in your spouse, do we actually pray to God for change? I mean, this is one of the best realizations we can all come to in our marriage, that we have absolutely no ability to change our spouse. That's one of the most freeing moments you're ever going to get to right there. And it's not until you know that that you'll actually start praying for them. One of the best things that we could ever come to the realization is with our parenting is that we don't have the capacity to make our kids love Jesus and live for Jesus. We don't have the capacity to, and it's not until you know that and feel that deep in your bones that your Bible reading with them isn't going to do that. Your new city catechism, it ain't going to do that. All of those things are not going, it takes God to do that. And it's just asking the question, are we a people who are praying for that? When we um, are interacting with the difficult neighbor, that we'd really rather be in our house not doing this right now. In that moment, are we praying? Like when you get the check back from work, like it's a paycheck and you look at it and you're like, I did not know I made that much money this month. Like for whatever reason, it's like more than you thought. Do you already have your mind made up on the 15 ways you're going to spend it? Or are we a people who pray about it? This is the question. This is why Paul says, pray without ceasing. He is saying that in every moment of your life, every minute of your life, every little millisecond of your life, you are absolutely dependent upon God for help, for leadership, for guidance, for the things that you cannot do. You are absolutely dependent upon him. And are we, is the posture of our life a praying without ceasing? As an expression of dependence, are we looking up to God knowing complete poverty of spirit? God, I need you to help now. Are we living that way? That's the question of the passage. This is what it means to live by faith in Jesus. It's living in such a way that we know every moment, every day that we actually need him. So maybe I could apply it in the room like this. If I were to give you a sheet of paper and write at the top of the list, what do you think your top one or two greatest like spiritual roadblocks, setbacks, like your, your barriers, the obstacles, the, the major spiritual weaknesses that you have in your life? Just go ahead and list like the top one, two, three of those. What, what do you think you'd put down on that paper? It's an interesting question to consider, huh? And can I just tell you what I think? I'm going to go ahead and put one at the top of the list for all of us in the room. 
Because I think at the end of the day, this gets right down to the core of what our primary problem is when it comes to all things spiritual in our life with Jesus. Self-reliance. That we really believe that we've got what it takes to see things through. And, And Jesus, in an act of grace here, is letting his disciples know and us You don't have what it takes. Your self-reliance will kill you and everyone around you. It will rob you of fruitfulness in your life. It will rob you of ministry effectiveness in your life. It will rob you as you try to pastor in your home and raise kids and have a good marriage. That self-reliance will kill all of that because you're gonna run into a million this kind of things that your self-reliance can't fix. Now, let me give this one warning and we'll, we'll move on here. In, in Matthew chapter, or in Mark chapter 6, Jesus actually gives the disciples the power and authority to cast out demons, to heal people, to do all these crazy things. And in, Ma- in Mark chapter 6, verse 13, they are doing all of those things. Now, you fast forward just a couple of chapters from there, and all of a sudden they went from God, we are dependent upon your power to do this. To God, we really don't need you. We've got this under control. In like three chapters, that's where they got. Now, can can we just all hear this warning in the room, especially those in the room who have been Christians for a good while, that one of the occupational hazards of long time being a Christian, that thing, is self-reliance. See, all of us start, this is what it requires for us to be saved. Nothing, right? that we have absolutely nothing before God, that we know we are dependent upon God. This is the moment we are converted and that Jesus rescues us. It's the moment we come to God, hands in the air saying, I need help, I can't do this. But then if you're not careful, the longer you live the Christian life, the longer you kind of develop a little bit of a theological vocabulary, you gain a little biblical literacy, you kind of do this and that, you get some of the external kind of conformity and behaviors of what is identified with Christianity kind of nailed, you get a little bit of ministry success in you. And if you're not careful, that's all you're going to need. Just like the disciples, a little bit of power, a little bit of success, that's all you're going to need to feel like you absolutely have everything you need to do everything you want to do. I mean, I I just want to give that warning for a lot of us, especially those in the room who have been Christians for a good while, that self-reliance will absolutely rob you of intimacy with God, spiritual fruitfulness in your life. It will rob you of all of those things. And now now let me just kind of press this one step further, because there's a lot of us in the room who we have been a Christian for a long time, but you know what? There is no zeal in our life for Jesus. No zeal. We do the things because we know we should do them, but there is absolutely no passion, no desire, no pursuit. And do you know why that is? Self-reliance. It kills passion and, and, and desire. It kills all of those things. And maybe this morning, maybe we can just hear these words from Jesus, and maybe this would be a wonderful morning to repent that's the solution to this, pro- this, this whole problem in this passage, by the way, is repentance. Repenting of our self-reliance as we turn back to Jesus, 100% dependent upon him, knowing, expressing to God that we, to this morning, we are just as dependent now as the moment we first believed. We are just as dependent now. And it's not until we feel that that we'll have any passion for Jesus in our life. So it, it begs this question, are we a praying people? 
We living moment to moment by faith. So this is the problem of the passage. Self-reliant, expressed in prayerlessness. But I want to um, quickly show you the picture of faith in this passage. The picture of faith. So look back at verse 17. Like I, I love this because Jesus isn't just correcting them. He's actually showing them what he wants from them. What, what it looks like to live by faith. So here it is in verse 17. And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And can you just feel the frustration if you were the father? You just brought your son thinking that this is going to be the moment he's, he's set free from this. And, and just the disappointment and frustration that would be there. Verse 19, and he answered, Jesus answered, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy, and when the spirit saw, uh, saw Jesus, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and water to destroy him. Now, I don't chase a whole lot of rabbits preaching, but there is a rabbit right here that we've got to catch. So bear with me just for a second. It's going to be a little bit of a tangent. I want you to look at the vivid imagery Mark uses to describe this boy's condition. Now just look at this. Verse 18, seizes him, throws him down. He's foaming at the mouth. He's grinding his teeth. He's becoming rigid. Verse 22, he's cast into fire and water. Uh, this evil spirit is trying to destroy him. That is vivid language. Now I want you to answer the question or just at, maybe ask the question, why is he using such vivid language to describe this? And, and here's my answer to that. I think he's using that sort of vivid language because Mark is trying to show us the sinfulness of sin, the evil of evil. I think this is what he's trying to show us, that this is how evil sin is. This is how bad sin is. This is how sinful and destructive sin is, that, that sin never leads to good. It never leads to peace. It never leads to joy. It always leads to the disintegration of a human being to the complete unraveling of a person. This is what sin eventually looks like. If, if you want to know what, what, what's happening, kind of with those words, Mark is showing us that when sin and evil have their full reign, what sin and evil produce. Now, here is the problem that you and I, we all have. In the moment, sometimes sin doesn't look that sinful. And evil doesn't look that evil. Like when, when the coworker like, kind of like, glances by your little cubicle or whatever you work in with the flirtatious look, that just doesn't look that evil in the moment. It actually looks kind of beautiful. That, that little moment where you're hearing gossip doesn't seem that evil. It feels kind of energizing. That little moment of rebellion, you know, that, that moment that you say, who cares what God or anyone else says? I'm going to do what I want to do. That doesn't feel that bad. It actually feels kind of like freedom for a moment. And Mark is trying to show us this is the end road of all of that. This is where it leads. This is what it looks like for sin and evil to have full reign in your life. So can I just take a moment to just pastor some of us in the room? There are a lot of us right now who are toying with sin because it looks really alluring on the surface. It looks really good on the surface. And we can't see what's at the heart of that sin yet. We can't see what's at the middle of that evil. 
We can't see that at its core, this is what it produces, the absolute disintegration and unraveling of a human being. And so can we just hear the warning? Like for those of us who are toying, for those of us who, who are like allowing sin to coexist in our life unchecked, unrestrained, we're just kind of allowing it, acting like it's a tamed animal that we can kind of control. Can we just hear this warning and see this this morning? That's not how sin works. This is where sin is headed. This is where it's going. This is how sinful sin is, how evil it looks, where it's going in your life. Okay, rabbit caught. Now we're back to verse 22. The end of verse 22. The father looks back up at Jesus and here's what the father says to Jesus. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Now that is an expression of genuine faith. He is bringing his son to Jesus and saying, you're the only hope I have. But that's a, that's a weak faith, isn't it? It's, a, it's, it's genuine faith, but it's, it's a swaying faith. There's not much strong about that faith. It's a, if you can, will you please do something sort of faith. It's genuine, but it's weak. Now I want you to look how Jesus responds to him. Verse 23, if you can... I, the, the guy just said, Jesus, if you can do this, will you do it? And Jesus says, if you can, are you, are you, if you can, is that, is that what you just asked me? And, and then he goes on to clarify, all things are possible for the one who believes. He's saying, if, if you can, the problem is not my ability or my willingness. The problem is your belief. It, it's not a question of if I can. The real question is, do you think I can? That's where the real question is. Do you think I can do this? I love what um, one pastor said. He said, divine ability is not the problem. Human unbelief is. There is, and I love this imagery. He says, there is a reliable bridge between human frailty and weakness on the one hand and divine sufficiency and power on the other. And that divine little bridge, reliable bridge is faith. It's trust, it's dependence. That's the bridge that plugs weak faith into a really strong Jesus. That's, that's the bridge. And Jesus is saying, Man, th- that's the issue. Do, do you have the bridge? Do you have, do you have faith? Do, do you, it's not, can I? It's do you think I can? That's the issue. And I love this man's response back to Jesus. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe Help my unbelief. Welcome to the war in every follower of Jesus' heart right there, huh? I believe, but I sure need a lot of help in believing more. I I believe, but but God, will you please help my unbelief? That that is the story of every follower of Jesus' life right there. I believe, but it's a weak belief. It's a frail faith. And and Jesus, I need help believing more. I love what John Calvin said commenting on this particular passage. And I'm going to paraphrase it, but I love this. This has given so much clarity to me on how the Christian life works. He says, in commenting on this, he says, the truth is we are all partly unbelievers until we die. You are, I am, we are all partly unbelievers. And we all need help from Jesus, right? We all need help. Now, let me, let me say this just really quickly. The Bible does not prize doubt. It does not prize it. It does not put that as like a, you should strive for this doubt. But it does understand it. In Jude, um, verse 22, um, the Bible's gonna say, God, please give mercy and help to those who doubt. It does understand it. 
And if you want a verse that you shouldn't memorize to give you great help in the midst of all of your doubt, here it is. Father, I believe, but help my unbelief. I think you will find yourself saying that to God, pleading that to God, pouring your heart out to God with that, with that phrase and those words over and over in your life. And then look at how Jesus responds to him. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse. So that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. Now, just to clarify here, this passage does not say, If you believe, you are guaranteed what you ask. It says, if you believe, all things are possible. It does not say that it's a guarantee. And I just want to protect like this moment from people being abused by this passage, right? And so it's not saying that you name it and you believe it and you're going to get it. That is not what the Bible is teaching here. It's saying that, that, that even like weak faith, even weak faith connects you to the power of God where all things are possible. But, but just to be clear, in Hebrews 11, this is like, monuments of faith in the Bible. It's, it's a chapter of people who've had great faith in the Bible. And some of those had wonderful things happen, wonderful rescue and like temporary life sort of situations. But others, it says, were imprisoned. They were stoned. Some were sawn in two and worse, right? So just to be clear, faith does not guarantee you temporal, like these temporal things, Right? It does not guarantee you in the moment that God is going to come and like do the little thing you're asking right now in the moment. But it does connect you to an all-powerful God who can. Who can. So, so here's, what, here's what Jesus is showing us in this little you know, interlude between he and this man. He is showing us that it doesn't matter. Now listen to this. It doesn't matter how strong your faith is if it's in a weak Savior. It does not matter how strong your faith is if your Savior is not strong enough to do it. Right? And so the truth is that many of us in the room, you came in this morning and you have all sorts of weak saviors. We have all sorts of weak saviors. Our saviors are our husbands and wives. We're looking to our kids to save us, our job to save us, money and possessions to save us. And when I say save, I'm just saying this, that we are living moment to moment by faith in those things to make our life okay. Many of us are looking to ourselves to save us, our wisdom, our strength, our know-how. And Jesus is trying to make it very clear in this passage. If your faith is ultimately strong, but it's in a really weak Savior, it really doesn't matter. Because there's going to be a moment where your weak Savior disintegrates. And if your faith is in that Savior, you disintegrate with it. But here's the other side of what he's teaching here. It doesn't matter how weak your faith is if it's in a ultimately strong Savior. Didn't matter how weak it is, this man's faith was really shaky, wasn't it? There wasn't a whole lot to admire about his faith other than it was honest and it was real, right? But it was shaky. It was not strong. This is one of the weakest cries of, of, for help and faith in the Bible, right? It's a weak cry, but here, here's the good news of the gospel. Because of Jesus, God hears our weak cries and responds, I, God takes even the weakest of our faith because of Jesus and he counts it as perfect faith because of Jesus. This is what he's teaching, that even the weakest of faith when it's in a strong Savior does unbelievable things. Even the weakest of faith in the right Savior plugs us into the God who can do all things, anything, 
Now I'll, I'll end with this. I think this passage might get us to a point of asking the question, well, how do we get more of that sort of faith? That sort of moment-to-moment faith that would cause us to, to pray to God, to be people who our disposition in life is prayer. Like prayer is faith turned toward God. How, how do we get more of that sort of faith that turns us, the disposition and the posture of our life to God, knowing that we are absolutely needy and helpless, that we need God like that? How, how do we get more of that? Look at verse 30 and 31. It doesn't come from looking inside yourself, what you have or don't have. It comes from looking outside yourself. Verse 30. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples and saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. If you want to know where this sort of faith comes from, how you get more of that sort of faith It is by looking at the person and work of Jesus. It is by looking at this Jesus, who is the Savior, who is the Messiah, who who Peter says, you are the Christ, you are the rescuer, you are the redeemer. And it's by looking at how he has redeemed us. It's by looking at the fact that he lived a perfect life, perfectly fulfilling the commands of God, making up for every one of your imperfections. It comes from looking at the cross where all of our imperfections were stacked on Jesus and all of his perfection, his perfect record of righteousness was credited to us. It comes from looking at that. It comes from looking at the power of God expressed in the resurrection of Jesus where God flexes his muscle and shows his power over Satan's sin and death. That's where it comes from. I mean, I pray that you and I would be a people who are constantly looking at that. Amen. Let's pray together. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.